Stephen said he talked about the ex- exposition of God's word. I hope it's not going to be the execution of God's word tonight. I'll be honest with you. I feel like Daniel did at the end of several visions. For example, Daniel 7:28, where he said, after a particular revelation, and we saw this already several times <clears throat> through Daniel, he said, at this point the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. And that's how I felt as I was studying the time I had to study Daniel 9 this week, 24 to 27. I felt that paleness of face and a lot of other <laughs> physical problems. Uh, and I'm telling you, before I, did, I looked in this particular passage, the hardest chapter and passage I dealt with in my whole life was Daniel chapter 7. And now I've come to the conclusion that Daniel 9, 24 to 27, is the hardest passage I've ever dealt with personally. Uh, Stephen Miller says that uh, these are four of the most controversial verses in the whole Bible. Another scholar says this is the most difficult text in the book of Daniel. And by the way, I believe the best policy is to exercise charity or love towards those who disagree on eschatology. Uh, if a guy you know, doesn't hold our view exactly, he sees something different. I, uh, we're not to. I, I don't think it's our place to, uh, you know, break fellowship over it. And now, if a guy held a doctrine of salvation differently, and said that we're saved by works in some manner, then we have a problem on our hands. But if someone holds a different view on doctrine of last things, I'm not going to get. Uh, I don't want to fight the guy and be unkind and all that. I don't think that would be the right thing to do. So exercise charity in those things. But tonight, I'm going to try to keep it as simple as I can. We're not going to get to verse 27 because time stopped me uh, just before that quite honestly so we'll go through verse 26 tonight of Daniel chapter 9 Daniel chapter 9 verse 24 through 26 actually and I want to divide it this way just to keep it simple that's all first of all I want to look at the time frame of Daniel 9 24 to 27 then we want to look at the people in this passage then we want to look at the purpose and then the chronology and understand what preceded this. In the last couple of weeks, we talked about Daniel's prayer, which was fantastic prayer, tremendous, where he confessed his sins. Basically, he confessed the sins of Israel, who had rebelled against God, and that's why they were in this captivity in Babylon, Media, Persia. And uh, he included himself in it because he says we and us over and over again in this chapter. So Daniel had, had prayed, and now Gabriel comes with an answer in verses 20, 21, 22. We saw that last week. Verse 22, he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. It's interesting that he says to Daniel, you're highly esteemed. This is what God thinks of Daniel, has this, has this estimate of Daniel, although Daniel is just a man. But we've seen, we have seen through Daniel what kind of man he is, a man committed fully to God, right? So we want to look at Daniel's uh, chapter 9, verses 24 to 27 tonight. So let's read those verses first. Uh, let's, all, uh, let's all stand tonight as we read this. Daniel 9, 24 to 27. It says here, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision, vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be, it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. 
Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. You may be seated. First of all, we're going to look at the time frame in verse 24 of these 70 weeks. It says, 70 weeks in verse 24 have been decreed for your people and your holy city, and it gives the reasons why. I want you to know, first of all, that when it says 70 weeks, it does not mean 70 weeks. It absolutely does not. The Hebrew text does not say 70 weeks. It says 70 periods of seven, or it says 70 sevens, plural, 70 sevens. That's the literal rendering. So what does 70 sevens mean? Or what do 70 periods of seven mean? Well, it does not specify in the text itself what units of time are being talked about here. It could be sevens of days, it could be sevens of months, or sevens of years, or so on. So what, what is it? Well, I believe it's best to take this to 70 periods of seven years, and there are several reasons why. First of all, I believe the context is talking about years here. As we saw, in, look at Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> it says, Daniel 9, 1, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, <clears throat> who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So we can see here he's talking about years already in the context. And we looked at Daniel, uh, rather we looked at Jeremiah 25. Look back at Jeremiah chapter 25 where when Daniel read this, he read the book of, of Jeremiah obviously, and uh, he came across verses like this. He would have come across this in his reading. In Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12, it says here, Jeremiah says, this whole land will be a desolation, prophesying a, 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 a time of captivity. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for how long? Seventy years. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon, that nation declares the Lord for their iniquity, and so on. So he's talking about years. Look at Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Daniel no doubt would have read this. It says here, For thus says the Lord, when 70, what? 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. And so we see here that uh, he's stressing years, and these are literal years, obviously. It could mean nothing else. They would take, the people would take them to mean nothing else other than the liter literal years of captivity. So they were going to be in Babylon for 70 years, and Daniel read about this. And so in the context, it's talking about years. We can see that right from the, the get-go. And then I want you to know, secondly, there's a precedent set in the Bible to interpret this phrase seven periods of time uh, as years. Look at Genesis 29. This is just a precedent. I want you to look at this. Genesis 29, when it talks about Jacob who served Laban for his daughters to marry them. Genesis 29, verses 27 and 28. It says here, complete the week, Laban says to Jacob, 
complete, complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also. In other words, uh, work for uh, uh, Leah, work for Rachel. We will give you the other one also for the service which you shall serve with me for another seven years. And verse, uh, he says, first of all, complete the week. And then he says seven years. Verse 28, Jacob did so and completed her week, and he gave him his daughter Rachel as wife. Uh, where it says complete the week, the Hebrew there is to complete, to complete a period of seven, the same phrase in Daniel. At the end of the verse, it says, you shall serve me for another seven years. And the Hebrew there is seven years, literal seven years. Verse 28 says he completed her week. That's a period of seven again. Verse 30 says Jacob served with Laban for another seven years, seven literal years. So you have a precedent here set for a week, uh, meaning years. Thirdly, Israel was familiar with the concept of sevens of years and sevens of days. God created the earth in, in six literal days and then rested on the Sabbath, the seventh day of the Sabbath, right? Every, every seventh year was to be a Sabbath of rest for Israel. They were to let the land rest every seventh year, according to Leviticus 25, verses 1 to 7. And God promised that if they didn't do that, that was one of the reasons, by the way, they went to the Babylonian captivity, because they did not do that. According to 2 Chronicles 36, 21, he said, one of the reasons you're in this captivity is because you did not keep the, the Sabbath, uh, this, this, this idea about keeping the Sabbath uh, uh, every seventh year as the land had to rest. You didn't do it. The Jews failed to keep that. And so we see that would push us toward the idea, once again, of years in this, in this passage here. And then fourthly, according to John Woolbird, an uh, expert in uh, eschatology, he says the overwhelming consensus of scholarship agrees that the time unit should be considered years in Daniel 9.24. Therefore, concluding, I believe that Daniel 9.24-27 is talking about 77s of years, or 490 years, if you want to put it that way, that's the time frame we're looking at. Understand that, okay? That is the time frame. Seventy uh, sevens, or seven, 70 years of seven. Also notice the word decreed in verse 24. Seventy, 70 weeks, or years, weeks of years have been decreed for your people in your holy city. The events to be described in this passage are certain. They've been ordained by God, established by God. They will come to pass. He is guaranteed that they will by saying that. So that's the time frame. What about the people? What people are under discussion in this passage? Verse 24 says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Your people, your holy city. These are Daniel's people. Obviously, Daniel's people are who? They're Israel, right? And the holy city is obviously Jerusalem. And for whom had Daniel prayed in this chapter? Chapter 9, he had prayed for his people, Israel. Verse 2 tells us that. Uh, verse 7 uh, verse 6 says that, that these people had not listened to God's servants, the prophets. Verse 6, moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. These are people that were obviously prophets in Israel. Verse 7, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel. Makes it very clear. Talking about the people of God who are Jews. And there's more references we could look at there, but the Jews are under discussion in chapters, basically, Jews under discussion in chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. These are Daniel's people. Uh, verse 25 of just this chapter talks about Jerusalem once again. Now, there are scholars who symbolize this, and they say that Daniel's people are spiritual Israel, the church, and the holy city is heavenly Jerusalem, but I, mean, I, I can't even find a warrant for that in this passage at all anywhere. So I believe that the text is talking about literal people, the Jews of Israel, and the literal city of Jerusalem, and that's obviously who we have under discussion in this chapter. That's the people. What about the purpose for, for all this uh, that God has decreed? Well, 
uh, it's, it's interesting that before God unfolds the chronology of these events in this chapter, he kind of gives a, uh, the purpose up front. A uh, man by the name of Lecoq says, the eschatological blessings are described first before the steps which lead to them are spoken of. I noticed that when I was reading this, by the way, that, they, that the purpose was given first, and I thought that was interesting, because you can make a good conclusion with these purposes. He starts out with this, and the purpose you'll notice is actually sixfold. Look at verse uh, 24. He says here, uh, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people, your holy city. Number one, to finish the transgression. Number two, to make an end of sin. Number three, to make atonement for iniquity. Number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Number five, to seal up vision and prophecy. Number six, to anoint the most holy place. So there's a six-fold purpose that, are, that is here, a six, uh, six goals that won't reach their ultimate uh, fulfillment until the future kingdom of God. Some people like to divide these six up into two groups of three. They say there's three negative uh, purposes and three positive purposes or results. The first three are negative and the, and the last three are positive. For example, the first three, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity are negative results, and then the last three are positive. However, just looking at the passage itself, it seems to me that's just kind of a man-made um, stipulation placed upon it, and so I can't bring myself to say that, but I just see six goals here that are listed, six purposes that are mandated by God, and that's all and nothing more. Well, what are these six purposes? Well, number one, to finish the transgression. To finish means to complete or bring to an end. To bring what to an end? To bring transgression to an end. The, the ver verb transgression has to do with rebellion. The real significance of the word, according to Dr. Zimmick, by the way, is spiritual rebellion. Um, and this is not the same Hebrew word as in Daniel chapter 9, verse 11. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside. Uh, Isaiah 1-2 uses this word. By the way, turn to Isaiah 1-2 to see another use of this. Also in Ezekiel, we'll look at that too. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Same word used there as Daniel 9:24, when Isaiah says in Isaiah 9, uh, 1, 2, <clears throat> Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up. This is his own people, the Jews. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. That's the word. They've revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, a donkey its master's manger. Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And in this whole chapter, he indicts Israel for the rebellion against them. That's their spiritual condition. Look at Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 3. Let's see that word again. <coughs> Ezekiel 2, 3. Then he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel. They're a bunch of nice people, right? He says, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people, same word, who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. And that's what God, that's God's commentary on Israel. And so he says these people have transgressed. Romans 11 talks about that as well. Uh, obviously not the same word used, but Romans 11, I'll read this to you, verses 11 and 12. It says, I say then, ha, did, they did not stumble, the Jews, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? And so God has this indictment against Israel. They've transgressed against me. They've revolted against me. they rebelled against me. It's been their history. 
It's been the way they've been. We've seen this in Sunday school. As we've gone through the first five books of the Bible, in the fourth book now, we've seen it time and time again, their transgression, their rebellion again and again. And that word transgression in, in, in chapter 24 is preceded by a definite article, the. It is the transgression. And it seems that maybe the most obvious meaning is that this is Israel's course of apostasy. And their sin is going to be brought to completion at the end of the 77. So God, one goal God has here in this, in this uh, event, uh, unfolding of events is he's going to finish the transgression and bring it to an end. And then he goes on in chapter, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, to say, secondly, he's going, to put, uh, he's going to make an end of sin, to make an end of sin, or some say to seal up sins. Actually, the word is in the plural. In Hebrew, it's sins, plural. He's going to seal up sins or make an end of sins. So, and it's the same root word as is used in verse 5, by the way, where it says we have sinned. Remember we went over that? That particular word means to miss the mark or the goal. And all those words that were descriptive of different kinds of sins, Daniel talked about, we talked about all that. This particular word is the Mr. Mark or the goal. And Israel repeatedly missed the mark that God set. God has a perfect mark of holiness, he says, right? And they continually failed to meet up to that goal and, and, uh, and missed it by a wide margin. And so they were people that were, uh, were sinning against God. And their accumulation of sins was responsible for this. But one day, God will put an end to their sins because he says here, I'm going to make an end of sin one day. That's the goal. That's the purpose. Thirdly, it says here he's going to make atonement for iniquity. To make atonement means to make a covering. <coughs> and the idea, as you know, comes from the Old Testament sacrificial system where, uh, in which blood was sprinkled over the mercy seat in the tabernacle, showing that the sin of the people was forgiven in Leviticus uh, 16, for example, Day of Atonement. Iniquity is found, is, is, this is the same word found in verse 5, where it says we have sinned, we have committed iniquity. Um, and that word, if you recall, means what? Does anybody remember? It means to bend or distort. It means to uh, pervert the way of God. God had laid down his path for Israel to follow, and they had perverted that way and walked their own way. And so Israel was guilty of iniquity. And God says, one of the purposes I have for you is to make atonement for iniquity. And we know that the provision for sin was made for by Christ, right? When he came in the first century, Christ died on the cross uh, for, for, the, for the sins of people. And he died for sin. He alone can atone for it. Nobody else can. But by and large, Israel has not turned to Christ, have they? But at the second coming, in the end times, in the, in the last days, God is going to bring to himself those whom he has effectually called. And uh, it talks about that in Romans 11 as well. And so God says, I'm going to make atonement for iniquity. That's one of the purposes. The fourth purpose, he says here, I'm going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now I'm going to go to, and by the way, I was heavily dependent in this particular passage, especially on certain sources, because this was very, I'm telling you, this was very difficult for me, this passage right here. And I want to quote Mike's teacher in seminary, James Roscup, on this passage. He says, it will not be until the second advent <clears throat> that God shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. It says that in Romans 11:26. At that, time, at that time, according to Zechariah 13.1, a fountain of cleansing will be opened unto the inhabitants of Jerusalem as they at last enter into the benefits of the provision of Messiah, which they have rejected for centuries. Israel, which is to be saved, will have an everlasting salvation, Isaiah 45.17. And so will they have, therefore they will have everlasting righteousness, and that's what the purpose is, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Israel's enjoyment of, of new covenant blessings is related to specific features that must come to pass. They must be restored to the land of Palestine, 
the very land God gave to their fathers. Thus only in a day when these details are made true for Israel and not before can it be said that everlasting righteousness has been brought in for the nation, which verse 24 has centrally in view. And so the fourth purpose of God is to bring in everlasting righteousness. Obviously, there's no everlasting righteousness right now, right? And there wasn't in the first century after Christ died, although Christ made provision atonement for, or atonement for sin, rather. But one day when Christ comes back, there'll be made there'll be an everlasting righteousness. So that's the fourth purpose. The fifth purpose, verse 24, to seal up vision and prophecy. To seal up vision and prophecy. And I've got to say, this was rather difficult. And apparently there are two main views on this. Either could mean this. First of all, it could mean the sealing or the closing up of a document because in ancient times the scroll was rolled up and sealed shut for preservation. We talked about that in another chapter already. Or it could be taken another way. A seal also was a mark of authentication by a king or another official. In the first place, if he seals up the prophecy, it's not, there's not going to be any need for prophecies during, uh, during the last days anyway. It's going to be over with. They're not going to need them anyway. It's going to be true at the end of age. There will be no more need for, for that. In the second case, God will set his seal of authentication upon every truly God-given revelation. And so the result is the same in either case. God will bring about fulfillment of all prophecy at the end of the age. And so he's going to seal up vision and prophecy. That's the fifth purpose. Sixth purpose, he's going to anoint the most holy place. Once again, difficult to understand. Most people either understand it as referring to a holy person or a holy place. To anoint means to consecrate for religious service. But those that consider this to be a holy person obviously would say that it's Christ. But the phrase in all probability refers to a most holy place. And the reason is the phrase in Hebrews is literally the holy of holies. And according to one commentator, this phrase occurs 39 times in the Old Testament in reference to the temple or tabernacle, so it seems best to take this as a future temple, although there would probably be a wave of people who would argue that point. And that temple is going to be consecrated for worship. And if that's the case, then that future temple is described in uh, Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48. If you've ever read those chapters and you see this temple and you wonder what's going on with that, the thought is that's a future temple in the millennial kingdom, Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48. Now these then are the six purposes that God has decreed in light of the 77s. Uh, uh, fourthly, we have the chronology in verses uh, 24 to 27. Once again, I'm heavily dependent upon some guys for this passage. James Roscup, Harold Honer, and Stephen Miller, and some other guys. Uh, verse 25. So you, you are, here's the chronology. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. He says, from the issuing of a decree, or actually literally from the issuing of a word, to destroy and re, uh, to restore and, be, and rebuild Jerusalem. That is the starting point of the 77s, when a command was issued to, to re restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So when was that? When was that command given? Well, once again, there are several dates that have been put forth by different guys, and I want to state three major views and then talk about what, we're gonna, what I'm going with here. One view says that this decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem went out in 538 B.C. or even 539 B.C. That is the decree of Cyprus to rebuild the temple. Uh, Cyrus to rebuild the temple, rather. 
That's found in Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Um, however, Daniel 9.25 says that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And the problem with that view is Cyrus only decreed for the temple to be rebuilt and not the city itself. That's one view. Another view is that the decree to, ish to restore and rebuild Jerusalem went out in 457 or 458 B.C. can't be just one year. It's got to be two and every time, by the way. And that is the decree of Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes I permitting Ezra and other Jews to return to Palestine after the captivity and concern, and that was concerned more with the establishment and practice of the proper services at the temple. That's Ezra 7, uh, 11 to 26. So it's not a specific command to rebuild the city of Jerusalem required by Daniel 9.25. Not a specific command to do that. So I, for that reason, I don't go with that either. The view that we would go with in our, in our system of eschatology and our scheme of things would be the one that says, that the decree was given in 444 or 445 B.C. Once again, we have another dilemma because there's a year separating those. That's in Nehemiah 2 one day. Look at Nehemiah. <coughs> Sorry for all the technical data, but that's the nature of the passage once again. Nehemiah 2, 1 to 8. This is the second decree of Artaxerxes, by the way, to Nehemiah. And... Uh, you'll see that Nehemiah asks for permission to rebuild Jerusalem, and, and the king gives that permission. Uh, Nehemiah 2, 1 to 8, and it came about in the month Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, so the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city... The place of my father's tombs lies desolate, and its gates have, been, gates have been consumed by fire. Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. That's a great uh, statement by, right there, by the way. <clears throat> I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. There's the request. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the Jordan, beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to be make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I go, which, which I will go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was upon me. So here, Artaxerxes grants Nehemiah the permission to go rebuild Jerusalem. So I'm taking it that that is the view uh, that uh, I'm going to, that's the view I'm going to hold to. He says in Daniel 9.25, you, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven weeks and 62. Why does it say that? Why, there, why did it say seven weeks and 62 weeks? Why didn't it just say 69 weeks? Seems kind of strange, right? Uh, it's distinct from the seven is distinct from the 62. And the best explanation that I could, I could see seems to be that Nehemiah took time to build, rebuild Jerusalem. There's debris all over the place. He had to clear up the city. He had to rebuild it. It took a long time to do that, to restore it to a vital, some kind of a, a normal city. And it took time. And the end of the verse here in verse, 20, uh, verse 25 talks about it will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. And certainly when you read Nehemiah, 
there was troublous times. They were being, you know, opposed by enemies when they were trying to rebuild the city and so on. It was difficult times. And so it took time to build. And so the first seven, seven sevens equal 49 years. And it, and it took Nehemiah 49 years or so for the project, I guess. So starting at the date of 444 B.C., which is the date we're going to go, that would bring us to 395 B.C. By the way, did everybody get a handout of the calculations? Okay, we'll look at that in a minute. <laughs> Another nightmare. Okay, now another word about this chronology. The reckoning for time will not be based on 365 days in this passage, 365 days for a year. It's rather going to be reckoned on 360 days for a year, and that's a prophetic year. Uh, and so why are we doing that? Well, first of all, let me say this. A man by the name of Sir Robert Anderson a long time ago did a serious study on this issue right here. And he said it was customary for the Jews to have 12 months of 360 days in their calendar. And then, every once in a while, when they needed to, they'd insert a 13th month in order to correct the calendar. The use of the 360-day uh, year also is concerned by the 40, confirmed rather by the 42 months of the Great Tribulation. We've talked about that somewhat. It's, cons it's confirmed by the, the, the number 1260 in Revelation, 1260 days. So, I, so we're, I'm, I'm taking this scheme actually... A guy by the name of Harold Honer, a scholar of recent times, has tweaked this system, and, and we're going to use his calculations. And uh, so if you'll get your paper out, <laughs> uh, and by the way, in order, I'm, the, I'm horrible at math. And, and so when I'm looking at this, you know, some of you guys are math experts in here. I realize that. In one second, you've got to figure it out. It took me like two years to understand what was going on with this. I, I had to call a calculus expert and a trigonometry guy and a called the physics department at USF, and I still can't figure it out. But Harold Honer figured it out. So he says this. this it goes something like this, the scheme. The seven years plus the 62 years in Daniel 9.25 equals 69 years, obviously. I know that part. 69 times 7 equals 483 years. If you multiply that by 360 calendar days, you get 173,880 days. We saw in Nehemiah 2.1 that Artaxerxes issued a decree to rebuild Jerusalem in the month of Nisan. That's March, April, our March and April. So the calculation begins in the month of Nisan of 444 B.C., according to Harold Honer. Honer actually begins on March 5th, 444 B.C. If you have any questions about this, ask Mike or Dr. Martin later on. Okay. Harold Honer actually begins on March 5th, 444 B.C. Dr. Martin may hold another view. I don't know. <laughs> and he calculates the 62 weeks or 483 years to March, and it goes all the way to March 30th, 33 A.D. On that day, March 30th, 33 A.D., Harold Honer says that Christ entered Jerusalem triumphantly on the donkey from Luke 19:42. He says it was on that day. He's saying that this calculation takes you exactly to the triumphal entry of Christ. Some, th some people say it takes you exactly to the baptism of Christ. But once again, we're going with this scheme right here. And so Sir Robert Anderson says the same thing, goes to the triumphal entry of Christ. So uh, verse 26. Then after the tw 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. It says after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The reference here to being cut off is to being cut off, and that word is used to establish covenants and different things, but it's used here to cut off, to a person being cut off in death. 
And so we, we believe here that Messiah uh, is, is this uh, prophecy of the uh, crucifixion of Christ. This is one Old Testament prophecy of the crucifixion of Christ. By the way, Christ, Christ talked about how the Old Testament talks about himself, and here's a, here's a place right here. Just like uh, Isaiah 53, 8, which, by the way, has a synonym for this word, and it says Christ, God's servant, the Messiah, will be cut off from the land of the living, and Messiah would die right in the first century and atone for sin, and he did. And so and it says here he would have nothing. What does that mean? Well, when Christ died, he died without any honor. He was rejected by men. He was treated as a criminal. He was crucified on a cross. Uh, he was forsaken by his father. This is the time we refer to as Christ's humiliation. And so he had nothing. So Messiah would be cut off and have nothing, it says. And then it says in verse 26, <clears throat> the people of the prince, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. Thank you, Mike Sprott, for help on this. People of the prince who will to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, in 70 A.D., the temple, uh, Titus, a Roman general uh, in Rome, they destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D., destroyed Jerusalem completely, uh, demolished it. And, uh, and so it was destroyed by the people, the Roman people. And the, those people, the Roman people, are going to be, they were, they were like, uh, they were of Satan, basically, and they had nothing, obviously, they could care less about God or his people, and they destroyed that city. Those people would be like the people of the prince who would who would be able, who who will come in the future. People of the prince who is to come, the pe- the prince who is to come is the antichrist who's going to come in the future one day, and the people mentioned here are, are like the people that will follow antichrist in the future, and that they they ransacked Jerusalem and destroyed it, and had no, nothing to do with with God's people at all. And look at the end of the verse, verse 26. Its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. The magnitude of the destruction of 70 A.D. was just, as emphasized in this verse, it was devastating. And so we see here that this is somewhat of the chronology that uh, I've looked at, and uh, it's, very, it's been very difficult for me to look through this. I'm not, uh, eschatology is a very dif- difficult subject for me, and I just want to tell you that and uh, be honest with you about that. And so, uh, but this is where we've come to so far. Next week we're going to pick up in verse 27, but I want to say in conclusion this, a few things. How are, we to, what, how are we to make sense of this? Well, first of all, God has a plan for history. He has a plan for history. He's, as we've seen, what, what has been the main theme of Daniel that we've seen throughout every chapter? What is it? God is sovereign, right? He's sovereign. He's sovereign over everything. And not, not only is he sovereign over kings, and he's sovereign over Israel, and he's sovereign over the, the punishment of Israel, and he's sovereign over the, the, the three Hebrew children, over Daniel and all the trials they went through. He's sovereign over history as well, sovereign over history. So God is sovereign and in control. He's got a plan. He's not just a helter-skelter out there and doesn't know what's going on. God has a plan. Secondly, God has a plan for Israel. He has a plan for Israel. He's not done with Israel. He's made promises to Israel. He plans on keeping them. Look at Romans chapter 11. (coughs) Romans 11, 1 and 2. Romans 11, 1 and 2, Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? God has not rejected his people. May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. 
Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, Lord, they have killed your prophets, and so on and so forth. But God hasn't rejected him. Look at verse 29. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God hasn't done away with Israel. He still has a plan for them. He has a future for them. It says in Jeremiah he's got a future and a hope for them. And so uh, that's another thing we can see in this passage is that God has a plan for Israel. Thirdly, God hates sin, and he's going to deal with it and has dealt with it. Uh, it talks about one day he wants to finish the transgression. He wants to make an end of sin. He's going to make atonement for iniquity. We, saw, we see that Christ died on the cross to make provision for sin, to atone for sin, if people will come to him by God's grace. And, and we see that sin's going to be dealt with uh, fi in finality one day. He's going to be done away with. God's not going to put up with it anymore. He hates sin. And one day he's going to put up with it. He's allowing it to run its course right now, but one day there's going to be an end. So we can see these are some of the things we can see in this passage, and we can, we can hold on to. So remember that. God's sovereign. God's in control. And whatever happens, he knows what's happening in your life right now. He knows what's happening in my life. Whatever you're going through right now, he's not, your life's not even out of control as far as God's concerned. He knows what's going on. He's sovereign over everything. Next week, we'll pick up in verse 27. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time together, <clears throat> for your word. We just pray you give us a clear apprehension and understanding of it. Uh, we don't want to misinterpret it, certainly. And we just pray you'll give us a good understanding of it, and, and not only that, but obedience to it. And we just pray you'll help us to glorify you in all that we do.